Hi guys, Carrie Thomas here, assistant producer of Memory Motel. I'm here to tell you, the listeners of Memory Motel podcast, that Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out their services. Here's a book recommendation for you based off of our previous episodes. If after episode two, Terrence has inspired you to keep all of your love mementos and it's taking up all of your space, we highly recommend you read The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Maria Kondo. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash memorymotel. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash memorymotel. And I'll be back next week with another recommendation based off of our episodes. Enjoy your free audiobook. My grandfather wore dress shirts, pressed pants, polished shoes. He drove a Cadillac. And he owned a garage in Manhattan with a small fleet of garbage trucks. The family name was painted on the side, Timothy Duffy Company, established in 1885. As a kid, when I saw one of his trucks on the street, I felt a stupid pride. I grew up with the glamour of garbage. But the summer I actually worked for my grandfather, during college, the glamour was gone. It was around 7 o'clock on a Friday, in the middle of August, when my Uncle Jim and I were driving back from the dump in Brooklyn, It was hot and we were both exhausted and frustrated. We'd wanted to beat the traffic and enjoy the weekend, but instead we were inching our way over the Williamsburg Bridge, headed back to the garage. And as we reached the peak, I could see the World Trade Center, the Statue of Liberty, the Manhattan and Brooklyn bridges. It was a majestic view, even from a garbage truck. And then we stopped short. The traffic moved ahead of us, but we didn't move. I'd been in a stalled car before, and there's always that hope of starting up again, but we weren't going anywhere. Then a sonic wave rose behind us, and it just kept getting louder and louder and louder, almost cresting, but then increasing as more cars joined the collective soul cry of impatience. It was Friday in August, and we were assholes for driving a shipbox. And thanks to the legacy painted on the side of our truck, The angry mob who would eventually pass us would know exactly who to curse by name. I had one week left before I returned to college, but my Uncle Jim had no end date planned. This was his life. This was his future. I'd seen defeat on his face before, when my grandfather, after he paid all the other workers, would tell Jim that he'd get paid next week, he promised. But on that bridge, something broke in him. It was backbreaking work under the best conditions. But since my grandfather had let the family business go to seed, it was even harder than it had to be. Every day was a small crisis. Either we didn't have enough money for the dump, or a pickup would be missed, a customer would threaten to end their service. And riding in the trucks meant risking your life. Bungee cords barely kept the doors shut. The stick shift rattled so violently that changing gears was like trying to tame a rabid squirrel. There was no heater, no air conditioner, and the dispatcher, the person answering the phones and taking down orders, ground control, if you will, was my other uncle, my Uncle Mike, who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. It was a business that should have been simple, straightforward, even rote, but nothing made sense. My grandfather was old, my Uncle Mike was sick, and my Uncle Jim was trying to hold together a family business on its last leg. What had once been a source of pride, the family name, 
the livelihood of three generations, the rich past we had in New York City, it was now an albatross, as unwanted as the garbage we packed into it and drove to the outskirts of the city. It was a past no one wanted anymore. Not my grandfather, not my uncle, and not me. While we waited in the cab of the truck, not talking, the sun was setting behind us, turning the windows and the buildings across the river into shimmering gold. And since we're Irish-American, I'll say a pot of it, waiting for us in the opposite direction of home. And it looked like our luck, if we had any, was not in returning to the fold, to the family business, to the Timothy Duffy legacy, but in leaving it all behind. If my uncle had wanted to abandon the garbage truck that night, walk over the bridge and disappear into Brooklyn, I probably wouldn't have stopped him. I definitely wouldn't have judged him. I think we all have a desire for a clean break from the past, to sever ties. It's as human as wanting to connect. I'm Terrence Mickey, and welcome back to Memory Motel. For the next three episodes, we'll explore how the internet's memory has changed our relationship to the past and our desire to forget. The Right to Oblivion, Part 1. So here's your chance to vicariously leave the past behind, shed your skin, and disappear. Meet Evan Ratliff, a writer. I had been looking for years for a way to do a story about a fake death. One of the things that interested me a lot was this, the psychology of what if I could just start over as a new person and what does that feel like and does it feel liberating or does it feel debilitating? At the time, this was in 2009, Evan worked at Wired magazine and he brought up the idea to his editor. But writing about a fake death, it's difficult. Typically, if you're a worthy subject for a story, you can't be found. So that was the dilemma. Then I just said, well, what if I did it? What if I faked my own death? That evolved from him saying, that's the worst fucking idea I've ever heard, into him saying, well, what if, what if we did something like that? I just can't remember. And I remember. I can't remember. This. I remember even. I do remember he said this. He said, Those stories were the essence of what it was to be alive. Can you trust that? Is that light always on? In the summer of 2009, Wired Magazine created a competition. Evan would try to vanish for a month and start over with a new identity. And the public would try to find him. And if they physically did within 30 days told him the password fluke, and took a picture, they'd win $5,000. If Evan was caught, he'd lose 3000 Now, if Evan had disappeared into the woods of Alaska with no internet service, his chances of getting caught would have been slim to none. But the point of the competition was to highlight our digital footprint, to show how every click, scan, and swipe reveals us to the world. From our credit card and easy pass bill to photos people tag of us on Facebook. And this was in 2009. Facebook and Twitter were newish companies. Instagram was only an idea. But even back then, our ever-expanding digital footprint was raising questions about privacy, surveillance, 
and the internet's unrelenting memory. The real challenge for Evan was not to disappear, but to disappear while participating in the digital world with the obligatory Facebook and Twitter accounts we all have, except his would be under an alias. This was all fake. Like, it was a fake thing, but I wanted it to feel real. I just wanted to give it some something that I, I could connect with. He needed a new digital identity, and he went with James Gatz. Hopefully you're remembering high school English class right now. In The Great Gatsby, Jay Gatsby, before he reinvented himself, was James Gatz. I feel like that's a story of reinvention of the type that fascinates me and that is feels very American. Okay, here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to read the last line of that novel. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Most people who fake their own deaths get caught trying to reconnect to the past with a drive through the old neighborhood, a call home, or moving forward with a part of their old biography they just can't give up. Or the past might just look for them. When I was on the road before the thing even started, I spent the night in this town called Prim. It's a depressing place. And when I woke up the next morning, my mom called me on my cell phone He'd given his parents explicit instructions to only use the burner phones he'd given them. A call on his cell phone meant he was now traceable. But his mother wasn't calling just to check in and say hi. The reason was that my grandmother had passed away. I was torn. I had a lot of questions about whether or not this whole thing was really a good idea at all. Why am I doing this and like, will it succeed? And is this gonna blow up in my face? Here's a reminder that reality is happening and it's also chasing you. The question was like, well, am I going to go through with this? And she said, I think you should, I think you should just go ahead. When his mother called, he'd already left his apartment in San Francisco and was on his way to Vegas, where he set up a fake office with two computers he could remotely connect to for the month. My hope partly was that people would identify the IP address of those machines and then really think I was in Las Vegas and then I would be a thousand miles away. Finally, the competition started. There was like a few hours before it was announced where I was really like, okay, I think I'm ready for this. Evan had sold his car for cash and took a bus from Vegas to LA where he planned to relax in Venice Beach while Wired announced the competition with photos of him. When it actually was announced, then everything was a blur. At the time, Twitter was still relatively new. It was not the Twitter of today. I remember seeing people mentioning my handle, 20 new, 40 new. Like, the screen, it would just keep saying, like, there were more and more. And I just had to close the computer and just take a minute. A shocking number of people organized around the Twitter tag Vanish. It got as high as 600 Twitter posts a day, and the growing mob quickly shared the name of his cat sitter, mechanic, favorite authors. They posted every address he'd ever had. They scoured his Flickr page writing software code to extract info from the images. And they found and shared every possible piece of information about Evan, except for his current location. It was actually upsetting because I thought, like, there's so many people that are all around me. This is much crazier than I thought. And then I was really worried that I hadn't done enough. And then 
his editor released the intimate info a private investigator could dig up. His social security number, details of his celiac disease, his soccer fandom. When we were planning it, I was like, yeah, 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 that's a good idea. You just don't think about what that means until someone just posts a blog post that says you, what you would maybe put on Facebook times 10. That's when people started saying, I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm looking for him here. What had started out as completely fake suddenly felt real to Evan. There were definitely emotions that I could not control. I sprinted through like the streets of Venice and hid out in a convenience store because I believed that a helicopter was chasing me. I feel like even people who read the story probably do not believe the thing about the helicopter, but is at least for myself, that is the most true thing I've ever written. Evan wanted to stay on the move, so he posted an ad on Craigslist for a ride across the country. He got one response from a touring rock band. The Hermit Thrushes. As James Gatz, he had a story ready for them. He was a film scout traveling across the country, and he'd planned to rent a car, but he lost his license. And he wondered if he could hitch a ride with them. And they welcomed him with the accommodating and carefree arms of 20-somethings chasing a dream. I just showed up at this house, and they had this approach to life that I had forgotten that you can have in your 20s, where they're all just kind of hanging out. You know, some of them are smoking a joint, other ones are like noodling on their guitar. I just sat around. It was a lot of endless stretches of time. We have so much time in life, which you kind of forget that feeling uh, when you get older and you're like, I have no time, there's no time, we're hurtling towards death. As a guy in his mid-30s and in disguise, he should have stuck out, but he did his best to fit in. They weren't my friends, but I was getting to know them and... We were in very close personal interactions, including, like, sometimes they didn't have any place to stay, and we just slept side by side on the floor of someone's house or, like, outside on the ground next to the highway. And those were the moments where it felt deeply, deeply strange. Like, I was pretending to be someone else. They didn't know who I was. Uh, It didn't feel like I was engaged in, like, a competition. And I felt like like a drifter. The hermit thrushes ended up in St. Louis, tempting Evan to reconnect with his past. Knowing all the mistakes that people made, there were many cases in which I made a version of those same mistakes. You still have the same things that you like and dislike, the things that you enjoy doing, so I still wanted to enjoy those things. They were doing a radio show at Wash U in St. Louis, which is where my friend is a professor, but they literally dropped me like, down the road from his office, and I just walked over there. It was hard for Evan's friend to recognize him. Evan was in disguise after all. But it was even harder for him to understand what was happening. It did set in relief how, like, disconnecting from everyone, even for a very short period of time, can give you this certain anxiety that when you see, actually see someone you know, you're sort of like, oh yeah, I remember what it's like to communicate with people that I'm close to. Evan and his friend hatched a plan. Evan would leave St. Louis for New Orleans, his final destination, find an apartment and settle in. And then he would meet his friend in Salt Lake City for the World Cup match. Evan was a soccer fan, something he didn't want to give up, which his hunters now knew. He made it to the game with his friend, but it was impossible to enjoy. Anyone that looked at me, I just thought, ah, that's, they've got me. 
I was just paranoid about everything. The airport, all the way out to the hotel, to the person checking me in, to the game. Like, every single moment was full of paranoia. And he had every right to feel paranoid. People knew I was going to be leaving Salt Lake and that I had to fly under my own name. Someone at Delta got into their system, found my itinerary, I just posted it on Twitter that I was flying from Salt Lake to Atlanta. So when I got to the airport, I was like standing at a bar thing and I opened up my laptop and like everyone was saying, he's going to Atlanta, he's going to Atlanta, going to Atlanta. People were saying, I'm in Atlanta, I'm driving to the airport right now. I am like legitimately a fugitive right now and people are, are on my tail, like how do I get out of here? There's a huge main area where you normally come up and then there's this one like tiny area in Atlanta, which is called the T-Gates, where you can get out the side to go to baggage claim. And I still remember like running for that and like running through it and running to the train station. After the Salt Lake trip, Evan's editor had thought they'd made the competition too hard for people. So he created two challenges for Evan. In a moment where I thought like, no one's gonna get me and I'm playing with house money, I said, okay, sure, yeah, why not? The first one was easy enough. Evan took a picture of himself on the top floor of the tallest building in New Orleans. The second one seemed easy as well. He had to attend a reading at a bookstore. But when he found a reading, it was the only one happening in the city that night. So that made me a little nervous, but then I thought like, well, this is, this relies on someone being in New Orleans, showing up there. So I just, I said like, I'm just gonna go. It's like a really hard to like think about how surreal it was at the time. I kind of couldn't find the place and I drove by and there were two guys standing out front who were just like surveying the world. Like it's not like I didn't see them. In my mind, I had had many, many instances of people who were looking at me and I thought, oh, they're going to get me, and then they weren't. And I just I just put it in that category. I just thought, like, oh, those guys are waiting for someone else to show up. That that person would be me seemed, at that moment, overly paranoid. So then I, I sort of, like, turned around and walked up. And they were almost, like, shocked. And one of them came up to me and said, fluke, which was the password. I had this just immediately, like just disappointment in myself washed over me, like self-loathing. It's not like they sleuthed me out, you know? They didn't track me down. Like, I just showed up at a place where they were waiting for me. It seemed terrible. Evan could have moved to any city, but he'd chosen New Orleans for a reason. I grew up in Atlanta, so it was a fun place to go, and we were... I felt like I knew it a little bit, but it wasn't, I'd never lived there and I didn't have any relatives there. I didn't actually have any friends who lived there. It seemed like the perfect place, but any connection to the past is a pitfall for the person trying to disappear. If you look through the reams of stuff that was published at the time, one of them was an interview with a childhood friend of mine who Nick, my editor, asked him like, where do you think he would go? And he, he just said, oh, he'd probably go to New Orleans. He loves New Orleans. You know, I should have gone to some place that I would never have gone. Jeff Reifman from Seattle had connected Evan to his alias James Gatz on Twitter. And when he noticed James, AKA Evan, had followed the only gluten-free pizzeria in New Orleans, Naked Pizza, he contacted the owners. They were excited by the idea of the contest and when the second challenge was announced on the Wired blog, they headed to the Garden District Bookshop to see if he'd show up, which he did. 
if I had not gone to the book reading, the thing that I was going to do was just go on to the gluten-free pizzeria where all of their employees had been given my photo. Like, I would have gotten caught there anyway. After Evan was found, he walked to the pizzeria, and the owners gave him a free pie. He was himself again, but not really. But then the deeply sad moment was then I went outside, and there was like an outdoor area, and I just sat on this bench by myself and ate the pizza. It's not like there was someone waiting for me to, like, say, okay, now you're back in your real life. Like, I was still in this person's life. Just now, there was no point to that. Here you've had all this attention, there's this pursuit, the story gets published, and then eventually the community kind of disappears and the story goes away. And what was it like to be, you know, kind of quote-unquote forgotten after the end of the whole thing? Well, for me, that felt great. I think a thing that I liked about it was how quickly everyone forgot that, uh, you know, that's dispiriting if you are trying to do things that people pay attention to, but it's very, it's a relief if you have a lot of your personal life online. All that stuff is still up there. If you work not very hard, you can find my social security number, you can find my signature, you can find, like, all sorts of things. If you Googled me, um, the first Google image result was of me with, like, the shaved head and the mustache. The irony is not lost on Evan. He tried to disappear, and now he's remembered by the internet with details he wished had been forgotten. I did have this feeling, what if people just keep on wanting to, like, have a piece of me for some reason, that it's fun to reveal more about me, or it's fun to, like, find my new address because I did this thing. There's just this deep philosophical question there about you should not be held responsible for everything that's ever happened in your life or everything you've ever done. The dumb things that I did as a teenager are forgotten because they were never preserved anywhere because there was no internet <laughs> when I was a teenager. But there's, there is some value in things going away. Like If you could preserve everything in your life, is that really a positive? I, t I tend to think no. With the help of digital memory and the internet, we can now preserve everything in our life and share it. And from cave paintings to the invention of the printing press, we've externalized our memories to preserve our knowledge and existence. This isn't anything new. But in the past, remembering had always been costly. In the digital age, remembering is cheap and nearly limitless. And forgetting, it's become rare. Two months after Evan was found, the book Delete the Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age was published. The author, Victor Mayer Schonberger, is a professor of internet governance and regulation at the University of Oxford Internet Institution. Even though Victor had written the idea for the book on a post-it note, he'd forgotten about it until a phone call from an economist reporter reminded him and spurred him to action. I once came up with the idea many years ago that forgetting really performs a very important, valuable function that potentially is undone thanks to our digital tools. And I, I wrote it down on a little post-it note, but forgot about the post-it note. Um, my brain is an efficient machine. Yes, he said efficient machine. For Victor, forgetting is not a bug of inefficiency in our system. It's necessary and efficient because it helps us focus on what's actually relevant. Years later, I got a phone call from an acquaintance of mine who was a journalist at The Economist, and he says, I I'm writing about the internet, and 
emerging trends, anything interesting. And I was there and I thought to myself, wow, this is my chance now to say something profound. And so I was desperately searching for something until uh, a stroke of genius hit me. And I said, how about forgetting and how forgetting is being undone in the digital age? And, and he said, wow, this is intriguing. Do you have a paper? And of course, I was, didn't have a paper. And I said, um, yeah, sort of. It's an early draft. And for the next 70 hours or so, I didn't sleep and I wrote a paper. And I sent it to the journalist and that got quoted in The Economist. Um, and I thought that, you know, under this sort of moment of pressure, I had come up with this idea until a few weeks later, I came across that post-it note and I realized that idea has been with me for quite some time, but it was sort of submerged and re-emerged again. Sometimes we remember and sometimes we forget. And hopefully we trust that what's important to us will emerge when The Economist calls us up looking for a quote. Our digital memory, on the other hand, relentlessly remembers. While our human memories are sometimes conscious, sometimes submerged, our digital memories rise from the depths and stay on the surface. Right now, submerging a digital memory is difficult, if not impossible in some cases, which is why Victor has been a champion of the right to be forgotten, which allows people in the EU to request from Google that an embarrassing record from the past be submerged into the internet's memory. As Victor says, Google knows more about us than we can remember ourselves. Uh, our brain is a very, very efficient machine, if you want. It tries to focus on what is necessary and what is relevant to us in the present. So stuff that our brain thinks is no longer relevant to us because our contexts have changed, because we have changed, our brain tends to forget or tends to reconstruct as we remember it so that it is better aligned with our views and values of the present. All this is done in order to make us act uh, and decide decisively in the present. For Victor, too perfect a recall, even when it's innocently intended to aid us in remembering, may prompt us to become caught up in our memories, unable to leave the past behind. The beauty of human forgetting is that it enables us to not start with a clean slate, but at least to untether us from an overwhelming and ever-present past. With digital tools, of course, we undo some of this mechanism of forgetting because with digital tools, it's so easy to store and retrieve data and information. And as we undo this, we, we, we kind of enter territory that is unfamiliar to us as human beings. In Right to Oblivion Part 2, we'll meet Frank Ahern, who's working on the front lines of this unfamiliar territory to help people leave behind the past. I think we, to a degree, know who we are as people, but I don't think we know who we are as digital entities and how it's going to be in the future. I mean, right now, just listen, there's all this information being collected and big data, and they're kind of chipping away and figuring out how it could be used to make money. Or I think we're becoming just so overshadowed that we as humans become less important. 
Thanks for listening to Memory Motel. If you enjoyed part one of The Right to Oblivion, part two will be available September 6th. And while you're waiting, please leave a review on iTunes. It's up to 50 now, which is great, but more wouldn't hurt. And if you haven't already done so, please sign up for our newsletter. We have a few special surprises for you in the current one. An extended trailer for the next episode, a Spotify playlist for the whole miniseries, and a personal note from our last guest, the writer T.T. Nguyen. You can subscribe on our website, memorymotel.audio, where you'll also find links to the work of Evan Ratliff and Victor Mayer Schoenberger. They're both featured in today's episode, which was produced by me, Terrence Mickey, and Bart Walshaw, who composed the theme music with production assistance from Carrie Ann Thomas, Carson Briggs Frame, and Samira Tazari. Please get in touch with us on Twitter at Memory Motel or Terrence underscore Mickey. Until next time, I can't wait to see what you find when you go back.